Blog Talk Radio. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show is about abolitionist art and the American slave trade, Slaves Waiting for Sale, with Dr. Marie McInnes. In 1853, Air Crow, a young British artist, visited a slave auction in Richmond, Virginia, and he captured the scene in sketches that he would later develop into a series of illustrations and paintings, including the culminating painting, Slaves Waiting for Sale, in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. McGinnis uses Crow's paintings to explore the slave trade in Richmond, Charleston, and New Orleans, and the evolving abolitionist art and the role of visual culture in the transatlantic world of the abolitionism. Now, she traces Crow's trajectory from Richmond across the American South and back to London, where his paintings were exhibited just a few weeks after the start of the Civil War. Now, Dr. McGinnis, she illuminates not only how his abolitionist art was inspired and made, but also how it influenced the international public's grasp of slavery in America. So her book has, you know, about... 140 illustrations, and Slave Waiting for Sale brings a fresh perspective to the American slave trade and abolitionism. Dr. McGinnis is Professor of Art and American Studies at the University of Virginia and will begin as provost at the University of Texas at Austin in, on July 1st. So she's the author of several books about art and and politics of slavery, and most recently, 
Slaves Waiting for Sale, Abolitionist Art, and the American Slave Trade. So let me give a warm welcome to Marie McInnes to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Marie. I'm very happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very happy to have you. And as I, I opened and I mentioned uh, Air Crow, uh, a young British artist, and how he visited the slave auction in Richmond, Virginia, but the, the, the real question is, well, how did he end up visiting the slave auction houses in Richmond, Virginia? And tell us a little bit more about Air Crow. Yeah, so Air Crow was as I mentioned, a young British artist, and he was a friend of a very famous British author named William Makepeace Thackeray. And in those days, authors didn't necessarily make all the money from the books that were sold, especially British artists in America. There wasn't a copyright agreement. And so Thackeray Though just as you know, the most famous artist in, or author in Britain, other than Charles Dickens, didn't make money from the books that were sold in America. So the best way for him to make money was to come to America and do a speaking tour. And so he asked his family friend Eric Crow to accompany him. And so they started their tour in northern cities, Boston, New York. Uh, Philadelphia, and worked their way down the coast uh, with one of their stops being Richmond, Virginia. And so while he was traveling in America, one of the first things that made a really big impression on him was that he purchased a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin just when it was released. He was here Um, in 1852 when the book was first published and he bought a copy and read it and was fascinated and from then on really began seeking to understand American slavery. So Uncle Tom's cabin was the reason. But in many ways, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. That and all the people he was meeting and the conversations he was listening to, he met a number of abolitionists when he was with Thackeray in Boston. Um, there, you know, it was the early 1850s, and there was a lot of talk about American slavery. Yes, but you know, you mentioned in your your introduction that that slavery was a very volatile political thing. So, what made it? motivated Eric Crow to create images about the American slave trade? It's an excellent question, and I think that it was a bit of an evolution for him. So I think he came here. He's only in his 20s. My bet is before he came to America, he had really not thought much about American slavery. And in the six months that he was in America and talking with people and observing and probably talking with slaves when he was in the American South. So he was in Washington, D.C., which was a slave city then, uh, Richmond, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina. I think that in those experiences, he came to define himself as an abolitionist. 
he came to a stance that was very much opposed to American slavery. And so he created these images in part because he wanted the British public to understand American slavery. And he understood very well the connection between the British textile industry and the money that was being made from that and where those textiles came from and the system of American slavery that propped up that industry. Yes. However, I mean, we're talking about the American slave trade, but when you think about abolitionism, what types of uh, images did he already or was he already exposed to before he came to America? Yeah, so you mentioned the political volatility of the subject of American slavery, and most of the imagery of the period of American slavery, quite a lot of it is made by foreign artists. Abolitionism begins as a movement in Great Britain in the 1790s, and its original meaning was not about ending slavery, but about ending the participation in the international slave trade. So when abolitionism first begins in the 1790s, their goal is to end the trade in people, the uh, stealing of people from Africa and putting them on ships and sending them to the new world. That's the original abolitionist movement. And it takes them about a decade to be successful. And in 1807, Britain ends its participation in the international slave trade. And then the movement loses steam until the 1820s when many women across Britain and some men, but it was a movement at this point led largely by women, begin campaigning to end, to abolish slavery in Britain's colonies. And in the 1830s, they are successful. And in 1838, Britain ends slavery in all of its colonies in the New World. Abolitionism in America doesn't really take off in a major way until the 1830s. There had been some earlier rumblings prior to that, um, particularly supported by the Quakers, who early on are trying to bring attention to the horror and the abomination of slavery. But it's really not until the 1830s that abolitionism gains strength in America. Um, And even then, it's a relatively fringe movement, even though many northern states have by then ended slavery in the northern states. There are very – it's a very small number of Americans who are ready to fight to end slavery in the southern states. And by the 1850s, it is growing in support. And Uncle Tom's Cabin certainly plays a major role in bringing to the attention of many people who had not thought much about American slavery, Northerners who politically had not been very motivated by the topic, are increasingly by the 1850s beginning to think about it and beginning to form opinions. And certainly Uncle Tom's Cabin played an important role in increasing their awareness. 
Very interesting. But I want to go back for a second because you mentioned women and uh, how the women were involved in around 1820 uh, with the whole notion of uh, uh, abolishing slavery. So what did they do? The women in Great Britain, of course, had no vote at the time, right? So they worked on influencing political opinion the best way they knew how. So they figured that if they could get a lot of women motivated to campaign and particularly influence their husbands, that maybe they could make a difference. And so the women organized around the kinds of activities that women were allowed to participate in then. They um, raised money. They published pamphlets. They organized events where they would invite other women and pass out materials and pamphlets. They commissioned artists to make images showing the horrors of slavery in the British colonies. They sold purses. They sold pin cushions. They organized to try to boycott the use of sugar produced in Britain's colonies because that was the main cash crop that was grown in Britain's colonies, Jamaica being the largest of those islands. Um, and tried to convince people not to use sugar from the Caribbean and instead use sugar from other parts of the world. So they motivated along the lines that they could control places where their participation was accepted. And by getting more and more women interested in it, reading about it, publishing materials, distributing information. They really helped the movement grow and spread so that by the 1830s, the British Parliament voted to end slavery in Britain's colonies. And so with that, what kind of role or was there any role when it came to art, abolitionist art, or at least images, what kind of images would the women proposed to be developed and put on pamphlets so that people could really have understand what was going on with human beings being sold. Yeah, yeah there was a huge shift, and it really was the women who led the shift. So the earliest abolitionist images are very well-known images today. They're, they're iconic images, and they were created in that 1797 campaign to try to end the international slave trade. And one was an image that showed a kneeling man wearing only a cloth around his waist with his hands clasped and shackles around his wrists with the words surrounding him that said, am I not a man and a brother? So that was one of the images. The, the other image is often referred to as the Brooks slave ship. And it was an image that showed really in many ways a, a kind of what would have been a well-known image at the time, a, a sort of diagram of a ship. 
But instead of a diagram of a ship showing, you know, so a kind of a floor plan and a side cutaway so that you could see the decks of the ship, instead of showing barrels loaded onto the ship, it instead showed bodies packed side by side. All of the bodies essentially looked the same. I mean, it's a relatively small image, um, but repeated over and over and over again to suggest the dense crowding and the horrible conditions that the slave ships had, those ships that brought 11 million Africans from their lives in Africa, uh, enslaved them and brought them to the New World. And these two images had a huge impact on that initial anti-slavery um, or anti-slave trade movement. And then for a long time, there really aren't any other images created uh, until this resurgence of abolitionist activity in the 1820s. And the images that the women commissioned focused very much on the humanity of the individuals involved. So one of the shifts was that the people represented were women. So the am I not a man and a brother became am I not a woman and a sister. But even mm -hmm. more than that, they created a, they asked print artists to make a series of images that focused on women as mothers, that focused on women holding and feeding their children, but being threatened by whipping to return to the fields. Or they showed images of children being taken away from their mothers so that they could be sold. They really focused on the human, the humanity um, of these individuals caught up in British slavery. And that was very much a tactic to appeal to mothers and to help those women in Britain who are thousands of miles away from people in Jamaica um, to identify with the enslaved as human beings. You know, most British middle-class women who were working to end slavery might never have known or met an individual who was enslaved. So it was important to try to use both word and image to help women living in northern England understand the campaign um, that they were trying to undertake. But what did, let's say, let's bring it back to America, because you're talking about the humanity and the images that they they put out. Did any of those images cross the, the Atlantic? Did people here understand just what this really meant when you're talking about chattel slavery and taking mothers away from their children and breaking up families and what have you? Yeah, so it was one of the challenges that abolitionists had um, was the getting people to be interested in the topic enough to look at the materials that they were producing. I would say of the 1820s, images that are produced in Great Britain, sure, there are some of them that circulate in the U.S., but they don't have a wide circulation. 
in the 1830s, as American abolitionism starts to get going, starts to build as a political movement, they too use imagery in order to try to get their message across. And in fact, one abolitionist, um, and I won't remember the quote exactly, but said something along the lines of, you know, an image tells um, a, a story that in, in ways that words can never do. You know, they understood that images were a really important part of trying to communicate their message. But their challenge was that in the 1830s and in the 1840s, it's not a large number of Americans who want, who are interested in mm -hmm. focusing on this subject. You know, it remains a relatively fringe political movement. You could probably have found many Americans living in states where slavery was not legal who would have said, yeah, you know, slavery's not right, but they probably wouldn't go much further. It took a lot mm -hmm. to motivate people um, to really support the cause of emancipation. And even when the American Civil War first begins, if you had asked most Northerners, what is this war about? The answer they would have given would not have originally been to end American slavery. It would have been to protect the Union. Mm -hmm. And it's over the course of the war that that opinion begins to shift. And it is Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which really flips that meaning of why the war is being fought. Right. Well, we have a question coming out of the chat, and it's going back to the sh the image of the ship. And somebody wanted to know the name of the ship again. You mentioned the it Brooks. when you the Brooks. Yep. It, okay, it, it, the Brooks, and it's it's spelled differently in different publications. Um, B r o o k e s and B r o o k s. Um, okay. And it's a very, very famous image. A single Google search on slave ship would probably bring it up. And it gets used again and again and again uh, because it is such a powerful and well-known image. Why? Well, we're going to take a quick break, come right back, and continue this discussion because this whole issue of Slaves waiting for sale. It, it's so complex, and it's and it's quite interesting how the the images that are being presented to us in your book. It's just information that we are just now learning about. So this is just a quick break, and we'll be right back. Have you thought about a genealogy institute to learn the right way to conduct research on Black family history or genealogy? Are you stuck? and where to go next for your own research or for a client. If so, then Maggie, the Teaching Institute, is for you. Maggie, M-A-A-G-I, is the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, now in its fourth year, and this year will unfold in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Maggie is the only multiple-track institute for African American genealogy methods. From July 12th to the 14th, Maggie will take place at the Genealogy Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Join the faculty and your colleagues for the Maggie experience that can change the trajectory of your work. That's Maggie, 
the Teaching Institute. For more information, visit the website at maagiinstitute.org. Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You have been listening to Marie McInnes discuss abolitionist art and the American slave trade, Slaves Waiting for Sale. So let's go back to Air Crow, and he's in Richmond, Virginia. And the image that he had at his exhibit is right now scrolling across the screen, Marie, so that others can see what it is. But tell us what was unique about this particular image. Crow's image is so remarkable because it is unlike the many, many images that had been created by that time focused on the American slave trade. So let me back up a second and make sure that listeners understand what I mean when I say the American slave trade. Because for most of us, when we think about the slave trade, we think of and know more about the international slave trade, and that is the trade that forced Africans into slavery and brought them to the New World. But in 1807, Britain ended their participation in that trade, and in 1808, the United States ended their participation in that trade. But that was not the end of slave trading in the United States, because what grew from that was an internal trade, and especially as the lands of the American Southwest open up and as cotton booms and the demand for pot cotton increases, the lands of Mississippi and Alabama, Louisiana, Texas are newly settled, and there are no people there to work that land. And the slave trade that emerges is a trade where people from Virginia and Maryland are then pulled away, torn away from their families and sold in this internal slave trade and sent down to the American Southwest where they are put to work in the cotton fields. And so what Crow witnessed on his visit to Richmond in 1853 was this slave trade, the slave trade where Virginia slaves were purchased quite often by dealers in New Orleans and Natchez, Mississippi, and a variety of other places, then marched overland hundreds of miles or put on a ship and shipped around to the port of New Orleans 
or put on a railroad and sent down to the American Southwest. And his image of slaves waiting for sale captured an unusual moment because abolitionist artists had been very focused on trying to tell the story of the American slave trade because it was one of the most visceral moments of American slavery. The idea that a mother and child would be separated on an auction block by people paying cash for other human beings was a moment that abolitionists had used to help gather opposition to American slavery. And so this auction scene became a very common one. And in those images, typically a slave would be poised on an auction block, uh, standing next to that slave, an auctioneer, and people gathered around bidding on uh, the person being sold. But what Crow did in his painting, Slaves Waiting for Sale, is that he decided instead to focus on a moment before the auction. And he showed a couple of benches in a room, in an auction sales room uh, in Richmond. And the people were just sitting there. It is a painting really with no activity, with no motion, with no narrative, which is rather unusual for 19th century art. And instead, what he's doing is showing a moment of incredible uncertainty for everybody who is there. Several of the people are looking at the doorway as some potential buyers are walking in through the doorway. And Crow is inviting people looking at the painting to consider that moment of uncertainty, that moment where those individuals are thinking about what their future might be. And so it is a painting that allows for the viewer and invites the viewer to really have to encounter the humanity of that moment. And so it was a very unusual image in that way. And in being unusual, gathered for him a lot of attention, meaning that he was able to get lots of people to think about American slavery. Yes, and and the image did do that. It also, you know, as I as I even looked at the image, you could see how the the slaves were dressed. And uh, in reading your book, you you do uh, indicate that businesses were set up really to help the the slave trader. I mean, the clothing, the jails. Uh, even the red flag that would hang out to let people know that an auction was was taking place. But tell us a little bit more about the uh, just the clothing and how the slaves were dressed. And yeah, image. I think when yeah, I think one of the things that um, almost everyone first notes when they see this painting, and I've heard this comment many, many times from many different people is, wow, the artist must really have, you know, cleaned up this image 
um, because surely people weren't dressed that way. And even when I first saw it, I, I too was very curious about that. And in my research in reading dozens of different people's descriptions of watching a slave auction everywhere in all different cities throughout the U.S., that's what people described. And then as you read former slave narratives, and they discuss their experience of um, being caught up in the slave trade and what happened to them in the slave trade, they too would talk about being dressed, um, dressed for sale. And so as research went on and, and um, I learned and, and came to understand what happened more fully, it became clear that this was part of a, a large system um, of American slave traders doing what they could to maximize the profit that they could realize from the people that they were selling. So when enslaved people were brought to slave traders uh, for sale, they were usually held in buildings called jails or pens um, or barricades or depots. There were different cities used different, um, used different terms for it. But they were held in the jail for a period of time so that the slave trader could prepare the people for sale. And they did a lot of things. They made sure if somebody came in too skinny, they would feed them extra rations for a period of time. If they had gray hair, they would pluck the gray hairs. If they had scars, they would fill in the scars with wax. And then on the day of sale, they would dress them up really in the, in the finest clothes. You know, men were often given, um, you know, sometimes even as fancy as top hats and women were put in dresses and sometimes even gold earrings were purchased. Um, and the level of clothing differentiated by how much the slave trader thought somebody might be worth. And so a young woman um, who might be um, sexually desired by a future owner uh, were often dressed the very finest um, of any of the people who were for sale, whereas an elderly slave would not be nearly as dressed up. And basically they had to, it, it was kind of this, this charade, but they're, they're getting the property ready for sale and they're setting them up the best way they can to make sure that they got the highest price. Uh, exactly. But you also mentioned a, a, another group, and this is something I want you to just talk about, the fancy girls. And who were the fancy girls? And even the fancy boys. Just tell us about those uh, enslaved that were called the fancy girls. Yes, yeah, so it was a term that was used even in the period to describe the women, usually of childbearing age, who typically were mixed race and beautiful, thought to be desirable or 
fancied, and that might be where the term comes from, by a future slave owner. So these were women who in many ways um, were being trafficked for the sexual desires of future buyers. And so there was a whole trade in people referred to as fancy girls. Um, And there's a character who is a fancy girl essentially in Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was a type, a, a sort of character type that became popular in 19th century fiction focused on telling stories of enslaved individuals. And it clearly was a important segment of the trade, especially, you know, sort of 15 to probably early 30s year old mixed race women and the lighter the skin, often the higher the money that was bid um, on that woman. It, it, it's sad, I mean, just to, to hear you you talk about, I mean, how the the young women were put up because most of them, of course, were fathers were most likely white and their mothers yes. were slaves. And the mothers had to watch their mixed-race daughters go up as fancy girls knowing exactly what would happen to their daughters not to mention what had already happened to them. But there's also a, a part in your book where you talk about the inspections. I mean, no no one went on the auction block without getting an inspection. So tell us about uh, the inspections and exactly what what image do most people see today that has a lot to do with uh, whether this slave was a runaway slave and what did they look for? Yeah, so, you know, former slaves who write about the experience of going through a slave auction often say that there are, are no words to describe the, uh, the experience of being examined for sale. Um, one former enslaved individual said the wickedness um, of that act cannot be described. In other words, he was unwilling to put it in words, um, but essentially implied that uh, the maker would judge those individuals in the afterlife. Um, White visitors who witnessed a slave auction described... um, a couple of different ways that slave bodies were inspected for sale. Quite often, women would be taken behind a screen that was set up in the auction room and would be stripped. They would be, uh, they they might just be stripped um, from the waist up or they might be completely stripped and their bodies examined by people uh, considering purchasing them. Men very often uh, were also examined, um, sometimes asked to strip, almost always asked to show their backs. And the reason why they were asked to show their backs is because 
potential buyers were looking to see whether or not they had been whipped. And they developed a whole series of kind of descriptors uh, to describe somebody's back, lightly whipped, many times whipped, uh, clean back, meaning that there were no scars from an earlier whipping. And the um, hard thing, I mean, all of this is, is so impossible to imagine um, and to understand, but it's important that we do because it's important that we understand the violence and brutality that supported the institution of slavery. Um, a whipped back to a buyer was thought to be some indication of the behavior of the enslaved, reading a whipped back as a sign that the person had been a runaway or had not been a compliant individual. Um, they never read it as a sign of the wickedness of the former slave owner. Um, so they were looking for quite often clean-backed slaves or people whose backs whose scars were very old um, because that might suggest that somebody had maybe once been a runaway but had learned their lesson um, from their whippings. Yes, and, and you know, I have some comments. One is that this is this is very hard to listen to and and just how horrible uh it is when you think about the inhumanity of how humans were treating other human beings. Uh just an extremely difficult uh subject just to to write about. But when we get back into the whole issue of uh abolitionist art, uh you have an image uh in uh your chapter on going south. And this is uh, another image by Air Crow after the sale uh, slaves going south from Virginia. Just describe to the listeners what this image is all about. Yeah, you know the the image slaves waiting for sale is a very, um, uh, as I said, it was a an image without action in many ways. Nine enslaved individuals seated on a bench, and uh, a few people entering a doorway, and it's very calm in many ways, right? It is really a painting about thought. It is a painting uh, that is rife with ambiguity. Going south is, by contrast, an image with an extraordinary amount of activity. It, it is a very chaotic scene. And what Crow was showing in that image is the moments after the sale, that is, what happens after an auction. And so he had happened upon one of the railroad depots in Richmond where people who had been purchased by slave dealers from the American Southwest were loading up the people that they had purchased to take them hundreds and hundreds of miles away from everything that they had ever known and everyone that they had ever known. And so it is a scene of great activity and great chaos. And, and much of the narrative is hard to read. There is in the center of it uh, an image of a woman 
holding a baby in her outstretched arms towards a man who is also reaching for that same baby. And so is he her husband? Is she handing him the baby because she has to leave? Is she handing him the baby so he can say goodbye to the baby? Um, it's really hard to know. I think it very clearly reads as a family separation of one sort. Um, people are carrying bundles. People are walking towards the railroad cars. Uh, you can see the Capitol building of Richmond, Virginia in the skyline behind. Um, it is a scene of real sort of chaos and confusion. Um, and I think in many ways helps to capture what Crow had seen, even though he could never have understood the emotional turmoil that really uh, the scene should have been about. Um, but the activity in it gives some hint towards that. Right. And uh, there's a question coming out of the chat room. Uh, were the more or less desirable if they were whipped? Meaning, was it believed that they were broken in like a horse, making them more marketable? This is a question coming out of the chat. Yeah, I mean, it, it varied. You know, different slave owners took different interpretations from that. Um, generally, slave owners liked to imagine that a clean back told them that that individual was compliant and did as he or she was expected to do. Um, for slave owners, an obedient slave was one of the most desired traits. Um, but as I said, slave owners often saw old whip marks as signs that an enslaved individual had essentially been taught a lesson. Right, right. And then, of course, somebody is asking, are all of the images in your book? And, of course, you have about 140 uh, illustrations in your book. Is that correct? That is correct. Mm -hmm. There are a number, there's a section of color plates, and then the rest of them are in black and white. And many of the abolitionist imagery, images um, are prints. They were... There's a very limited number of paintings that were ever produced uh, showing American slavery and showing the American slave trade. Um, so those are, are reproduced in color, and then most of the print imagery is in black and white. Right. So if uh, anyone would, uh, in addition to reading your book, uh, what else would you recommend that they study as far as resources and and other books to help them really understand what the whole um, anti-slavery movement looked like, and especially the the images uh, that they can can learn about to to get a better feel. I think the images tell more of a story sometimes than what you read in in print. Yes, uh, I would agree that that is because I'm an art historian, so I <laughs> obviously believe that. <laughs> that, that uh, one of the ways that we can understand our past um, and our present uh, is through imagery. It, it often is able to convey um, things, uh, the, the sort of an emotional sense 
of an issue in ways that that words sometimes can't quite capture. Um, There's actually a limited amount of publications that focus on abolitionist art. I would say one of the other major books that takes abolitionist imagery as its main subject is a book by a British author named Marcus Wood, and the name of the book is Blind Memory. And it is a really fabulous book. Uh, There have also been a number of exhibitions, mostly in Great Britain. Great Britain has been much more forthright in addressing its past of slave trading and slave holding um, than the United States has been. Uh, So they have had a number of major exhibitions. One was called Representing Slavery, And that is another great book that is filled with lots of images and artifacts related to slavery that is very useful. Um, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to note, though, that with the opening of the museum devoted to African-American history and culture on the National Mall, um, we will finally have a national museum dedicated to telling America's history of enslavement and the history of African Americans. Um, And that is a very long overdue uh, addition to our national mall um, and our national museums. Yes, and it's something that we are all waiting for, September the 24th, when it opens. Now, there is a question coming out of the chat, and the question uh, is about Crow's painting. And they want to know, is it in a private collection, or who owns it? Um, There are three known paintings by Crow that show images related to the American slave trade. And when I published my book, I only knew the location of two of them. So let me start with those two, and then I'll tell you about my discovery of the third painting. So Slaves Waiting for Sale, which is the book that, I mean, the image we've talked about the most and is on the cover of my book, is in the Heinz family collection, um, H-E-I-N-Z, Um, The Heinz family collection was put together by former Senator John Heinz, um, and his wife, Teresa Heinz, is the now wife of Senator, I mean, of uh, 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 Secretary of State John Kerry. The second painting, Going South, is owned by the Chicago History Museum, and The third painting, which I had assumed was lost because it hadn't been known for many, many years, I have since discovered is in the National Museum in Havana, Cuba. And I learned of its existence because a colleague of mine had traveled there. So as um, American and Cuban relations are allowing more Americans to travel to Cuba, Um, She had led a tour there and visited the museum and saw an image of a slave auction, was familiar with my work, and so sent me an image of the painting and said, do you by chance know what this painting is? And I knew immediately 
that it was the Lost Aircrow painting because it matched so closely a print that he had published after the painting um, as well as matched the descriptions from the time when it was exhibited. So the third Aircrow painting that shows a slave auction in Charleston, South Carolina, is in Havana, Cuba. And I was actually fortunate enough to travel there recently myself um, and see the painting, um, which I was very pleased to be able to do. And I hope one day that relations will normalize enough that we will be able to borrow the painting for exhibition in America. That would be wonderful. Now, there's another question coming out of the chat, and it's about uh, crows travel uh, through the South. Uh, and the question is, how were his illustrations uh, received? So crows illustrations were disseminated in a couple of different venues. Uh, the first was he made a number of print illustrations for a publication called the Illustrated London News. And the Illustrated London News was extremely popular. It was well-read not only in Great Britain, but also in the United States. And he both made the images, but also wrote the articles that accompanied these images. He was the son of a journalist and in many ways was at that moment acting as a journalist in the creation of these images and the publishing of these articles. And, and he told us a lot about what he was thinking and what he had interpreted from what he had seen. And, and it's pretty unusual for art historians to have such a rich vein of commentary from an artist. Um, so he wrote how he felt and what he thought when he first entered a slave auction. So it's really useful in understanding the images to know what he thought. And then from some of those sketches, he turned several of them into paintings for exhibition in different venues in Great Britain. We have no way today of knowing how readers of the Illustrated London News took to his images or thought about his images. But we do know how the critics responded to his paintings that were exhibited. The painting that received the most attention was is the one that's on the cover of the book, The Image Slaves Waiting for Sale. Part of the reason it received so much attention is that it was exhibited in May of 1861, only a few weeks after the American Civil War began with the firing of shots on Fort Sumter in South Carolina. And so everybody in Britain was talking about the American Civil War, and that brought an enormous amount of attention to his picture, Slaves Waiting for Sale. It was exhibited in the same room with another painting about American slavery by a British artist called Richard Ansdell, and his image of slaves running away through a swamp and being chased by dogs uh -huh. was often compared to the painting by Air Crow. Most of the critics thought the painting by Crow to be what they often referred to as a more truthful picture. Uh, they described Ansdell's picture as a bit of studio romance. They thought it was a bit 
overly dramatic. Whereas Crow's very quiet and contemplative image was seen to match the moment, was seen to express the real ambiguity that all British viewers in 1861 could have, would have had. And that really was the question of what is the future of American slavery and what is the future of the United States itself. So he did a great job of capturing both the ambiguity of the moment for the enslaved he represented, but also the ambiguity of the moment represented by the contemporary moment of the American Civil War. Right. Well, you have provided us with just wonderful information tonight. And do you have any closing remarks before we end the show? I would like to just add the following. Um, You know, I published the book a number of years ago. I then curated an exhibit that was at the Library of Virginia um, in Richmond, Virginia. And the historic New Orleans collection also had an exhibit focused on the American slave trade that was in New Orleans last year. And so work continues on this topic and needs to continue. And one of the things that we hope will continue to be done is the kind of work that will allow people um, who are descended from enslaved people whose families were ripped apart in the slave trade to be able to figure out ways if they're doing genealogical research to get over that hurdle. Um, I think in trying to understand one's past, I'm sure many people run into that hurdle that the slave trade represents. Um, There are lots of names and lots of ledgers. Uh, They rarely have last names, but it really is a story of probably nearly a million people who are taken from the upper South and moved to the lower South. And one of the most poignant things that was included in the New Orleans exhibition that I had not previously known about were newspaper advertisements that were placed by people in the 1870s, the 1880s, 1890s. And they would say things like, you know, does anybody know about, and then they would name family members, the last time I saw them was in Virginia in the 1850s, you know, before I was sold to Louisiana and so forth. Family members looking for each other um, after the Civil War. And it really speaks to the extraordinary disruption, the ripping apart of lives that the story of the American slave trade is really about and that really is the past for so many people who are descended from enslaved individuals in the U.S. Right. And uh, there's a comment coming out of the chat that there is a new a website database about the, the advertisements in the newspapers, and I'm, I'm hoping to connect 
uh, with the individuals that are working on that website so that they could come on my show and, and talk about that because, yes, those ads were placed in the newspaper and, and the, the many of the churches ran those ads. And so they're, they're, as heartbreaking as they are, we do have an account of people talking about trying to to connect, trying to find missing family members. And so with that, I want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. And for everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mari. Thank you for having me. Good night, everyone.